Shelley Schlender. And I'm Daniel Strain. This is How on Earth, the show that makes you smarter. Today is Tuesday, September 29th, 2015. Coming up, we'll talk to Jeffrey Moore, a geologist who studies the West's iconic rock arches and watches them for signs that they're about to collapse. Then we'll hear about a pesticide that's linked to the collapse of honeybee colonies and growing concerns that it's dangerous for other life as well and might bring about a new silent spring. We begin with a look at some of the recent news in science. Power in numbers. That's what crowdsourcing accomplishes, where many people using the internet tackle tasks that are too large for one person, but too complex for computers. Tasks that need that human touch. When this crowdsourcing helps with scientific research, it's called citizen science. In past editions of How on Earth, we've talked about citizen science projects for measuring rainfall, classifying galaxies, and searching for signals from aliens. Now an international team of researchers and citizen scientists has announced the discovery of 29 possible new windows to hidden corners of the universe, thanks to finding 29 new gravitational lens candidates. Gravitational lens systems are galaxies that are so massive, their gravity warps space-time enough to act like a special lens bending light and allowing us to see a more distant galaxy in the background. This warping effect is described by Einstein's general theory of relativity. Thank you, Albert. And discovering distant galaxies is only one of the payoffs of studying gravitational lens candidates. Dark matter around these massive galaxies contributes to their lensing effect. And so studying these gravitational lenses also gives scientists a way to study this exotic matter that emits no light. To discover these new 29-candidate gravitational lenses, it took the help of 37,000 citizen science volunteers who trained themselves to become lens hunters using an online portal, spacewarps.org. Once trained, these citizen scientists combed through 430,000 images to find gravitational lens candidates. Astrophysicists specializing in this area of research then validated the candidates. A paper with these results has been accepted for publication in the journal Monthly Notices of the Royal Astronomical Society. To find out more or to become a citizen scientist who searches for the most distant edges of the universe, go to spacewarps.org. Now a lesson in how to slurp up your food. This one courtesy of those flying mammals, the bats. On autumn evenings, you've probably seen bats swooping through the air to gobble up insects. But some bats, like many bees or butterflies, feed only on the nectar from plants. These furry creatures tend to have long, skinny tongues, in some cases almost as long as the rest of their bodies. Such liquors help the creatures siphon the nectar out of flowers, all without having to land. Still, not all bats use their extendable tongues in the same way. In a recent study, researchers employed slow-motion video to discover just how bats sip their sugary snacks. The animals fell into two groups. Some bats, like the palace's long-tongued bat, have tongues covered in tiny hair-like bristles. These creatures lap up nectar, flicking their tongues in and out of flowers. The second group of bats, however, are different. These critters, which include the orange nectar bat, don't lap at all. 
Instead, they submerge their tongues into pools of liquid. Then they use a series of grooves on their tongues to lift the nectar up and toward their mouths, sort of like a slobbery escalator. It's an impressive ability. The scientists say that such feats of slurping have never before been seen in the animal world. The team reported its findings last week in the journal Science Advances. And now we give a buzz to another lover of flowers. It's the honeybee. Mark your calendars for the sweetest conference in Boulder. It's the Western Apicultural Society Conference that starts this Thursday at Boulder's Millennium Harvest Hotel. Apiculture is the keeping of bees on an especially large scale, especially. This beekeeping conference will include topics such as healthy bee, with a focus on supporting bee health, and human-bee interactions. Matt Camper from Colorado State University will perform a bee beard by wearing several hundred honeybees on his face. Not all topics at the conference will be sweet, however. Scientists will discuss new research indicating that the controversial neonicotinoids, the chemicals that contribute to the death of honeybees, may also be killing birds and contaminating our waterways. Find out more by Googling Western Apicultural Society Conference, and we'll also talk about that more in the show today. You're listening to How on Earth, the KGNU Science Show. I'm Daniel Strain. Visitors to the American West have long felt a draw to rock arches. Tourists flock to snap photos underneath these stone monuments, such as Delicate Arch, a sweeping feature carved out of red sandstone in Arches National Park in Utah. But while rock arches may be an iconic part of the West, they're also a lot more alive and fragile than many people think. That became clear in 2008 when Wall Arch, another feature in Arches National Park, collapsed. The rock debris from that fall littered a popular hiking trail. Our first guest today is Dr. Jeffrey Moore, a geologist at the University of Utah. He's launched a research project to track the stability of rock arches in some of Utah's most visited parks. The effort relies on an invisible phenomenon, the natural vibrations in the Earth's geological features. Dr. Moore joins us from his office in Salt Lake City. Dr. Moore, welcome to How on Earth. Good morning. Thanks for having me. Well, thank you. Um, can you tell me, as a geologist, what, what has drawn you into studying rock arches? Uh, yeah, you know, as a geologist, I think, I think I'm really drawn by the sort of fantastic coincidence of, of phenomenon parameters that led to the the formation and and the continued existence of these forms. I mean, out in, in geological terms, the arches are exceptionally rare, and um, out out contrasted against the harsh environment in the desert. I think, especially, I think I think as a geologist and non-geologist alike, we really are drawn to this kind of contrast, and and we can see the the beauty and the fragility of Earth's surface processes, sort of ideally captured in these arch forms. Oh, yeah, and they're definitely a testament to the power of erosion. Yeah. 
And is there a danger there, too? I mentioned the example of wall arch, but earlier this year there was also a natural arch in Point Reyes National Seashore in California that collapsed, and actually one hiker was killed in that in that fall. Uh, it, what are the safety sort of concerns that come with, with these features? Well, I mean, yeah, I, I, to a certain extent there there is a danger. I mean, Arches National Park sees um, over a million visitors per year, and as you mentioned, the arch in Point Reyes, uh, that collapsed. Um, I, I, I think, you know, that it, this sort of potential hazard is just one of the many difficult, um, you know, management decisions that, that park service managers are faced with. Uh, but it's not, not only, you know, a hazard to visitors, which is definitely one of them, it's also, you know, managing impacts of, of nearby operations. It could be, for example, you know, oil extraction in the Moab area. It could be, for example, uh, air tours or even, you know, the effects of people walking around or, or in some cases, even climbing on these arches. So, so I, 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 you know, managers in the Park Service especially are tasked with the long-term preservation of these really exceptional geologic features. And in doing so, they have, they're faced with many very difficult questions, with which... I know until now i I'll say are lacking sort of quantitative data to help them evaluate, so part of our project goals is to provide some of this quantitative data that allows managers to address issues of hazard, as you point out, wall arch, um, but also issues of conservation well let's go into your research then uh your Your work examines these sort of minute vibrations in the earth that are like impossible to detect without sensitive equipment. Can you give me a sense of what's going on there? Yeah, so, so our, research, our research studies how natural arches vibrate uh, in an ambient sense. So we don't, we're not analyzing uh, stimulated resonance, just natural ambient resonance of these arches. And arches, like any feature at the, at the Earth's surface, an uh, engineered structure such as a building or a bridge or a natural structure like a tower or an arch, vibrates, and it vibrates in response to the background kind of hum of the Earth. And this, this hum comes from many forms, from the solid Earth, but also from the atmosphere, for example, wind. Um, and all of these sources stimulate vibration of arches, and um, the arches then resonate at their natural frequencies, much like when you would pluck a guitar string. It has, you know, a, a first and a second and a third natural frequency and associated mode shape. Um, that can be a kind of half sign or full sign form, and, fo- and so on. So, so every we, arch, in a way, kind of has its own tone, or maybe even several tones. Yeah, it has several tones, and um, we, you know we have very sensitive seismometers that allow us to detect those tones, if you like. And and the fundamental concept is that if if those resonant frequencies change, or if those tones change, it means that something internally has changed. So the resonant properties are a function of the bulk mechanical properties of the structure. And if something changes, like a crack grows inside the arch, um, then the resonant frequency will change, and we can detect that, and we can detect that in a very accurate manner, as we've seen. And let's go a little bit in. You mentioned you use seismometers. How do you go about measuring these uh, resonant frequencies? Yeah, so this is one of the things that makes our method attractive, especially in national parks, is that we don't, our method is, is totally non-invasive and non-destructive. The seismometer is about the size of a coffee cup, and uh, we simply bring it out in, in a box, and then we, we set it on the arch for at minimum an hour. It could be longer or, sh- or even shorter. We just set it there, and it has three little feet, and we level it, and 
record data for about an hour, just ambient vibration data, and then when we're done, we pick it up and take it away. And we can return to that structure to interrogate its resonant properties, you know, at, a, at any interval that's desired. It could be frequent if there's something suspected there, or it could be infrequent if we're just kind of keeping a long-term eye on a, on a particularly prominent feature. I see. So you're looking almost for a change in this sort of the way the, the arch is vibrating, and that might tell you that it is beginning to weaken or something of that nature. Yeah, that's, that's right. We're looking for a change in the resonant frequency, and then we can begin to interpret that further. Um, I ha- as an analogy, I, I just, as an example, I have, I have a series of plates at home, plain white plates, but one of those plates has a crack. And I can always tell this plate apart from the others, because when I set it down on the counter, it gives this kind of dull thud or crack compared to the high-pitched ring of my other place. And this is the kind of example of this structural health monitoring. There it's using sound waves, and here we're using, you know, ambient vibrations. But it's the same kind of phenomenon. And one of the interesting things that's also come out of your work is that you've seen that a lot of these rock arches aren't as inert as, as you tend to think. They actually can bend and flex even throughout the course of a day. Yeah, yeah. So they're, they're really dynamic. So in addition to uh, all this, these vibrations that are constantly going on, uh, they're also moving around with respect to how much water's in them. They'll sag if there's a lot of water in or, or also thermal effects of so thermal strains um, as heat builds up in the arch. Uh, it expands, but if it's locked in on its side, then it'll bow upwards, and then at night it'll side downwards. And we've actually been able to measure some of that using very sensitive tilt meters. Oh, wow. And, you know, uh, looking beyond Utah, um, uh, are there broader applications for the methods you're using for these rock arches? I'm thinking of other sort of geologic features like these amazing rock formations in in uh, Garden of the Gods here in Colorado. Yeah, there, there's really no reason why this, this can't be applied to many, many different types of geological features. Um, you know, rock towers, slabs, arches, um, and also things like landslides. Uh, you could study the evolution of an of a, uh, unstable block, for example, or uh, even of a deep-seated landslide. And for the same reasons, the resonance properties, you know, give a sort of bulk look at, at internal mechanical changes. I mean, we've, we've focused on rock arches here in Utah, especially because, number one, they they're, have a strong cultural significance. Um, and number two, they are relatively simple mechanical structures that allow us to really refine our methodology. Well, and you know, on that note, uh, as a last question, do you have a do you have a favorite arch? Is there one that you've worked with that that really you just you just love? Yeah, well, I I love a lot of them, um, but I guess right now I'd, I'd have to say my favorite is Rainbow Bridge. It's just an incredibly large and and, and fragile looking span. It's it's just incredible. Um, if 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 you haven't been, I. I I so strongly recommend it. It's, it's so unique. Yeah, we'll all, take a, we'll all take a trip. Dr. Moore, thank you so much for talking with us today. Thank you. Happy to be here. That was Dr. Jeffrey Moore talking to us about the natural bending and flexing in the West Rock Arches. You can check out some of his animations of wiggling arches by following the links posted on our website.
You are listening to How on Earth, the KGNU Science Show. I'm Shelley Schlender. This Thursday is the start of the Western Apicultural Society Conference at Boulder's Millennium Harvest House Hotel. Apiculture is the keeping of bees, especially on a large scale. Due to a problem known as colony collapse, concerns are running high about the future of honeybees and their role in pollinating crops. Among these concerns, one family of pesticides is notorious. It's the neonicotinoids. While most people associate neonicotinoid insecticides with their devastating impacts on honeybees and other pollinators, a new report shines light on the full scope of this unrecognized threat to our waters with toxic effects that can harm entire food chains and ecosystems. In fact, according to a report from the Center for Food Safety, neonicotinoids have shown up in half of U.S. streams sampled. This is raising the alarm that we are fast approaching an ecological crisis on par with that of DDT in the 1960s. For more, here's a special report from H2O Radio. The plight of honeybees and the dangers they face from insecticides called neonicotinoids has garnered worldwide attention. Even President Obama last year took notice, ordering a task force to find strategies to promote the health of honeybees and other pollinators. But a new report out this month says it's not just bees we should be concerned about. It's entire ecosystems that are at risk. According to the Center for Food Safety, alarming amounts of neonicotinoid insecticides are being found in water supplies. That means aquatic insects, birds, and even marine life are being caught in this toxic web. The report is the strong criticism yet of the insecticide, which is already banned in parts of Europe and being phased out in many cities and shines a light for the first time on the extent to which neonicotinoids impact entire food chains. According to Larissa Walker, pollinator program director at the center, we're on the brink of an ecological crisis. She likens it to a second silent spring, referring to Rachel Carson's seminal work about the use of DDT in the 1960s. These are systemic chemicals. They're extremely persistent, so they can last for several years in the environment after they're applied, and they're mobile. Um, that's really the biggest problem and that we've articulated in this report. Their persistence and their mobility are making them quite a threat to water bodies across the United States. That's partially because of how they're applied. While some are sprayed onto crops, there's a new technology that coats the seed itself straight from the manufacturer. So whether you have a pest or not, the seed comes with a host of chemicals to treat it. And as a farmer, there aren't many options, so the result is that the amount of neonicotinoids in the environment is skyrocketing. Researchers have said that 95% of all corn seed in the U.S. comes coated with a neonicotinoid. And now there are more than 150 million acres that we are using these chemicals across the U.S. And research has shown that the seed coating in particular, it's tailor-made for contaminating aquatic environments. Only a small percentage of the chemical on the outside of that seed gets taken up into the plant. Somewhere between 5, upwards of 20 percent, and the rest of it runs off into the environment, whether above ground or below ground. So it's no surprise that water bodies near agricultural fields are being contaminated, but that's only part of the problem. We're using these chemicals for landscaping and ornamental uses, turf, golf courses, big nursery areas, and it's running off into streams and creeks. And that leads to unintended consequences. For example, researchers at the University of Maryland found that runoff of one neonicotinoid called omidacloprid into Chesapeake 
Chesapeake Bay affected the ability of the iconic blue crabs there to molt. These chemicals will have a variety of chronic sublethal effects. So they might not kill a species outright, but they can build up in their system over time, make them weaker, make them more susceptible to diseases. Many bird species are dying from eating coated seeds or are at risk of starvation because the aquatic insects upon which they depend are disappearing. These birds are actually starving to death because Uses of these chemicals have wiped out the insect life in these areas. And so sparrows, swallows, thrushes are among the most impacted species with birds. If neonicotinoids are getting into the surface and groundwater, is there any research on whether they're getting into our drinking water? Such an understudied area with neonicotinoids. Um, in the report, we, we have a section where we discuss some of the restrictions that New York State has put into place because of its particularly vulnerable aquifers. And in fact, when regulators went in and scientists were, were taking water quality samples. In one case, it was Suffolk County Department of Health. They actually found one neonicotinoid as the third most frequently detected pesticide in groundwater and mm. the sixth most frequently detected pesticide in public water. So yes, it's a very understudied area and I think it leaves a big area open for, for discussion in terms of what impacts are these having beyond just the environment? What are the impacts to humans? So how did we get here? I think the, the most important point is that our our regulatory system and how we approve pesticides in this country is quite broken. Uh, EPA does not do the adequate risk assessments. They're not adequately assessing the synergistic effects, the additive effects, the sublethal chronic effects that we just talked about. In fact, the U.S. Court of Appeals in San Francisco drew the same conclusion. The judges ruled that the EPA approved a neonicotinoid made by Dow without enough study and ordered that the use of the pesticide be stopped nationwide. So what's the path forward? I would say that, you know, we've made a number of policy recommendations in this report. Really the biggest solution I see right now is calling on EPA to actually suspend these neonicotinoid registrations because of their unreasonable adverse effects in aquatic ecosystems. With any luck, these recommendations will be considered this week by agricultural companies, beekeepers, government officials, and biologists who are meeting at the Western Apicultural Society Conference in Boulder, Colorado. We'll report back on what, if any, buzz the conference creates. Reporting from Denver, Colorado, I'm Franny Halperin. And I'm Jamie Sudler. And you're listening to H2O Radio. That's all for this edition of How on Earth. Our executive producer is Susan Moran. I produced and engineered this week's show. Additional contributions by Joel Parker. Our theme music was written and produced by Josh Cutler. Additional music from Mark O'Connor and Philistine. Visit our website at howonearthradio.org to find past episodes, extended interviews, and you can subscribe to our podcast through iTunes and follow us on Facebook and Twitter. Questions or comments? Call the KGNU comment line at 303-447-9911. For How on Earth, the KGNU Science Show, I'm Daniel Strain. And I'm Shelley Schlender.